Do-it-yourself doesn't work for Christian living. There was a time in my life, I'm sorry to admit, that I really didn't believe that the Lord's words in Matthew 11, 28 to 30 were true. Sounds terrible, but that's the truth. When Jesus said, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In all honesty, there was a time in my Christian life that I didn't know that I could believe that. Of course, it's true. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Everything he says is true. But in my experience and my limited and skewed understanding of how things worked in Christianity, I wasn't sure that I believed that those words were true. And at that time in my life, I was convinced that rest wasn't really possible and that Jesus' yoke was hard and not easy. And I was convinced at that time in my life that Jesus' burden was heavy and not light. I was in a place of pastoral burnout. And I, at that time, I was pastoring out of a place of drivenness and people-pleasing. You see, I'd slipped into the trap of the overly fast treadmill of Christian service, and I was tired, and I was disenchanted. My flesh at that time was incessantly lying to me that my acceptance with God was based upon somehow my performance for God instead of being based on Christ's performance on the cross as validated by the empty tomb. My flesh at that time incessantly lied to me that same way that your flesh perhaps incessantly lies to each of you You do know that no one talks to you more in a day than you yourself do. No one talks to you more in a week than you do. I only came to the biblical and proper place of resting in my Savior when I unyoked myself from myself and from what others thought about me And when I unyoked myself, what others were pushing me to do. And I only came into the place of resting in my Lord Jesus when I began to pick up my Lord's assigned packages for me to carry. And when I set down all the other packages that I signed for myself to carry or the packages that well-meaning Christians around me handed me and told me to carry. Why do I tell you all this? Because I think it will help you be ready to receive the rest of this message. And I tell you all this because in a group this size, there are probably some listening that have come to the sanctuary today like I thought those years ago, or who are viewing online today with the same outlook that I had those years ago. And I tell you all this by way of introduction because Today's look at the Apostle Paul's first sermon as recorded in the book of Acts will cause us to see something very precious. That justification, that is God declaring believers in Christ righteous before him, that our justification before God has nothing to do with our righteous works. Plural. For the Lord. It's not our righteous works for the Lord that justify us, but rather... We are justified, declared 
innocent by a holy God based on Jesus Christ's perfectly righteous work, singular, on the cross. A work done for us. A work appropriated to us as when we believe what the Spirit of God imputes, Christ's righteousness to the count of every believer. And that is a perfect righteousness that is not built upon doing good works. Should we do good works? By all means. But not to be justified with God, but we do our good works because we have been justified by grace through the finished work of Christ. And so our good works are a thank you back to a God who justified us with his son's righteousness. That's why I tell you a bit of my story. It's not the first time I've told you. I'm sure you will remember. The book of Acts is titled for our series purpose, Acts 0 to 60, because the inspired book of Acts chronicles the events from the birth of the church, zero years old, to the church turning 60 years old. Our church turned 60 years old last fall. So when the action of the book of Acts is considered, it is telling us what the Holy Spirit did for the first 60 years of the church, zero to 60. And to review from last time in chapter 13, verses 1 to 12, we saw that there was, there was a concept of, of serving, a concept of being separated, and a concept of being sent. And we said that the first missionaries sent by the church at Antioch, first they served in the church at Antioch, second they were set apart by the church of Antioch, and then third, they were sent to be cross-cultural missionaries to other nations that surrounded where their church was based. We also saw that the word of God elicits different responses from different people. Truth does that. Have you noticed nowadays that it's popular in academia to say there's no such thing as objective truth? Only subjective truth. So they will say in the higher halls of learning that leave Jesus Christ out that your truth is your truth for you, but it may be totally the opposite of what I think is truth for me. That is not either logical, reasonable, or practical. There is objective truth that we can depend on that is unchanging. You jump off a building, gravity will pull you to the center of the earth every time. You're on the sea navigating to go to some place, uh, a nautical destination. You can... You can chart your progress accurately to that destination by the stars of the sky that God has hung in their places and they don't move. Objective, not subjective, truth. And so the word of God, which is the truth of God, in some cases we studied together was proclaimed. In some places the people who had the word of God proclaimed to them wanted the word of God. In other cases, those who had the word of God proclaimed resisted the word of God. They perverted the word of God. And the last thing we saw by way of a response last time was some persons who had the word of God proclaimed to them by the servants of God believed the word of God and they believed on the son of God who was at the center of the word of God. And so now we come to Paul's first sermon as recorded in the book of Acts. It's a long sermon. It's found in Acts chapter 13. You could turn there. Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 41. It's a long sermon. I'm not going to take the whole sermon in the time I have today. 
As you're turning to Acts chapter 13 and seeing that Paul's first sermon spans verses 16 to 41, I want you to know that this long sermon that Paul preached has three parts. And each of the three parts begins with either men and brethren or simply brethren. Anytime in this long sermon when you see men and brethren or simply brethren, it's a new part of the sermon, three parts altogether. You see that at the hinge point of verse 15, you see that at the hinge point of verse 26, and you see that at the hinge point of verse 38. Now, of course, every worthwhile and biblical sermon has a point. It has a big idea to make or multiple big ideas to make. Every worthwhile biblical sermon is that way. Paul's sermon, which was given at Antioch in Pisidia, was preached to listeners so that those listeners would get two takeaways. Let's go to the end of the sermon to see what those two takeaways are from Paul's sermon. He wanted the original listeners to take these two points out of his sermon, and by extension, today, God the Holy Spirit wants you and me to take these two takeaways out of Paul's sermon this morning. The first is, I'll give you the two takeaways and we'll see, see the verses. The first takeaway from Paul's sermon, number one, the Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ is not dead. Rather, the Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The second takeaway, number two, the forgiveness of sins and justification are only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not through law-keeping. That's why I told you my story when I was burned out. Because I thought law-keeping would make me justified before God, and I was running myself ragged as a perfectionist and as a people-pleaser. Let your eye go down to the end of the sermon at verses 36, 36 to 39, near the end of the sermon. 36 to 39, Paul is preaching. If you, in your imagination, you can almost hear his voice. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, that is, he died. He was buried with his fathers and saw corruption, that is, his body decayed. But he whom God has raised up, that's Christ, saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, Christ, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Two points of Paul's sermon back then are the still the two points of Paul's sermon this morning. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and forgiveness of sins and justification before God are based on faith in Christ and not on our keeping of God's law. And so with these things understood, let's now look back at the beginning of Paul's sermon. But before we go to the actual sermon itself, I want you to see some observations before we get to the sermon. Verses 13 to 15, Acts 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from, from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. 
and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Verse 15, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, that was customarily what happened in synagogues every Sabbath, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, another way of saying the Old Testament, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, that is the missionaries that were in their midst as visitors, saying, men and brethren, here comes the sermon, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Observation one before we get to the sermon, John Mark deserted Barnabas and Saul near the beginning of this missionary journey. Scripture doesn't tell us why. But he deserted Paul and Barnabas for some reason and went back to Jerusalem. Maybe he was uncomfortable with more and more Gentiles becoming Christians in faith in Christ. Or maybe he was just homesick. Or maybe he was afraid of being a missionary. Or maybe he was resentful that Paul was starting to take the lead instead of his cousin who was Barnabas. We don't know. I can't say definitively why he deserted, but he deserted. He abandoned the two missionaries and went back to Jerusalem. That's observation number one. Observation number two, Paul and Barnabas went straight to the Jewish synagogue. On the Sabbath, on the Saturday, they made a beeline to the synagogue in Pisidia, Antioch to worship with Jews who were in that synagogue. That tells us that Paul and Barnabas went straight to that Jewish synagogue to worship, yes, but they had a burden on their missionary hearts that Jew, their Jewish countrymen would know Christ. Paul speaks of that burden to see his Jewish countrymen born again in Christ in the epistle to the Romans, you may recall. Observation three. The rulers of that synagogue asked the visiting missionaries for a word of exhortation. I like that. They didn't just say, come and bring a greeting. Give us a word of exhortation from the scriptures if you have such a word. Boy, they got it from Paul. Now we can look at his sermon. Verse 16, Acts 13. Then Paul stood up motioning with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. There are two kinds of people that Paul addressed. The men of Israel, that was clearly the Jews in the synagogue that day, and you who fear God, that was Gentile proselytes to Judaism who decided to stop worshiping pagan idols to come into the Jewish religion and to worship the true God. They were in the synagogue too. And Paul knew it, and he addressed both of them. He essentially said, if you're Jewish here in the synagogue, listen to what God has to say from his word in this sermon to you. And if you're a proselyte convert to Judaism from being once a Gentile pagan worshiper, you listen to what God has to say through his word as well. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when he dwelt when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Paul started his sermon with a history lesson. And in many ways, still today, you don't really know where you are. You don't know really where you are going, except you know where you have been. And God, through his Preacher Paul wanted the audience on that first sermon to know where their forefathers had been so they could know how to respond to God then and how to 
respond to God going forward. And so Paul reminded the Jews who were gathered in the synagogue and listening to his sermon that God chose the Jews to be his special people. And he also reminded the Jews present and the Gentile converts to Judaism in the congregation that day that God miraculously, miraculously gave his people exodus out of slavery in Egypt. Some of our dear congregants have visited Egypt recently and they told me they've seen the pyramids that the Jews built. Mammoth. Paul wanted the hearers of that sermon to remember the history of the Jews that God miraculously had delivered his people, the Jewish people, out of slavery in Egypt and making of the pyramids and all the like. Verse 18. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. Why would Paul, after talking about the exodus of the Jewish nation out of Egypt, why would Paul in his sermon point out that later, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before God allowed them to enter their promised land? Why was that the next point in the sermon? Well, to emphasize that God has wrath, holy wrath, against sin. He did, he did then, he does today, and he always will. This is the same reason why verse 22, a little later in the sermon, points out that God removed King Saul, the first king of Israel, because God's wrath was against Saul's sin. And God's holy wrath is against sin, except we're in the refuge and the shadow of the cross that we will remember in the Lord's Supper together as believers later in this service. And if you're here having never run to the refuge and the protection and the sin payment of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross, this would be a fine morning to make that decision of repentant faith. Still with verse 18. Back then and still today, a person won't get saved until that person knows he or she is lost. If that person doesn't know about the wrath of God against all sin, he or she sees little need for the Savior or for his provided salvation. Got to know you're lost before you want to get saved. And it's with this we keep in mind when we share the gospel that I trust we're doing every day. We need to keep in mind that it's sin and wrath we need to help people get salvation from, not salvation from, not enough money in their bank accounts. Not a salvation from illness. Not a salvation from a less than meaningful best life now. When we share Christ, we must share with the people we love enough to share Christ with about the wrath of a holy God against their sin. and the love of a savior that would allow love for sinners and his heavenly father to hold him on that cruel cross and not the spikes through his hands and feet. We go on in Paul's sermon, verses 19 and 20. And when he had destroyed, speaking of God, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Verse 20, after that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. That whole generation that wanted onion recipes to go back to slavery and not eat manna that God had provided out of the Exodus, 
They buried a whole generation of Jews that disbelieved God in the, in the sand of the desert. Hundreds and hundreds of funerals every day of the 40 years they wandered in the wilderness because God is a wrathful God against sin. And then the subsequent generation was allowed to go into the promised land. The next topic on the sermon that I've just read is that Paul mentioned in his sermon the period of Israel's judges. As you would remember, that was a terribly wicked, awful time in the nation when every man, woman did what was right in their own eyes. They walked away from the holy law of God and they did what was right in their own eyes. Have you read the newspaper lately here? God is still a God of wrathful, holy wrath against sin. And in that period of judges, that time especially sinful when everyone in the Israeli nation did what was right in their own eyes, if you look at the book of Judges that depicts this time period, you see idol worship, marrying idol worshipers, homosexuality, rape, drunkenness, murder, and war. You don't know you need a savior till you know about your sin. So Paul preached about national sin that was historic to the listeners of this sermon. Verse 21, still in the sermon. And afterward they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. They were not happy to have God as their king because they wanted to do not what God told them to do, but they wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. They messed it up so much they thought, well, the solution is get a human king like all the nations that are around us. Give us a human king. And so God permitted them to have a human king. And on the outside, he looked like a middle linebacker for an NFL team, handsome, strong, sturdy. But as it turned out, his heart was not inclined to God's. And he failed miserably spiritually. And he dragged the nation of Israel into all kinds of compromise and sin. Paul wanted the listeners to his sermon in the synagogue that day to hear about that, in case they had forgot about that. And so in their discontentment, having God as their king, the Israelites asked for a king like the other nations had a human king. And it's in the sermon. It made the sermon because it emphasized and it points out that God's ways are the best and not our bright ideas. Verse 22. And when he had removed him, that is King Saul, he raised up for them David, the second king of Israel, David, as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, God speaking, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. David didn't look like a middle linebacker for an NFL team that was strong and sturdy. He was a youthful shepherd boy that they didn't even bring before the prophet as an option to be the second king of Israel. They forgot about him. They brought all the older brothers, all the more accomplished brothers. And you know what happened. Those were all rejected from, as not God's choice to be the second king. And David, the shepherd boy, was selected by God because David had a heart after God's own heart. 
And David, when all was said and done, David would do all the will of God that David knew to do. They needed to know that in the first sermon as well. Paul, the preacher that day, contrasted King Saul with King David, and the reasons are given for the Lord making David king, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And so this part of the sermon ends with the, the dealing that's been done with righteous godliness, when it was absent in the nation and when it became present in the nation. Then... By citing King David, Paul was also calling every listener to the sermon, and us by extension here in the sanctuary this morning, calling every listener to the sermon to a heart devotion to the Lord. A heart devotion which is not merely external, but is internal and real. A heart devotion to the Lord which is only possible if a person has their sins forgiven and they're justified and declared righteous by a holy God through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ onto that believer's life. Then that believer, once imputed with Christ's righteousness and justified by grace through faith in Christ, then that believer, in a sanctified manner, being set apart for God's possession and use, can honor the Lord Jesus Christ in his or her choices. Going to the end of the chapter for a moment again, the sermon again, verses 38 and 39 again, near the end of the sermon. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Is that you? Are you justified? Are you declared innocent by a holy God who has every right to be wrathful against your sin? Are you justified? Not based on works that you have done or will do, based on what Jesus Christ has done on the cross that was ratified as acceptable by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Is that where you're resting your trust? That's the only place to rest your trust if you're truly going to be justified. And so I ask you, are you justified? There are some folks in the service today I'm so delighted that got justified this past week in my office by them trusting Jesus to be their Savior. And they're so welcome here today. How about you? Do you know you're forgiven? Do you know that you've been made new in Christ, that you're saved, and that are you progressively becoming more like Jesus? Or are you stalled out? Like every good sermon, Paul's sermon is moving toward the Lord Jesus Christ in the sermon. Verse 23, sermon. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. If you marked your Bible, I would mark that. God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. In verse 23, there's mention made of what we call the Davidic Covenant. You can read more about the Davidic Covenant on your own time by looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Essentially, it was a promise that the ultimate Messiah would be in the genealogical line, humanly speaking, of David. 
Jesus Christ, humanly speaking, is in the genealogical line of David. Humanly speaking, Jesus Christ is a son of David. And in this verse 23, the connection is made between the Davidic covenant and the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as I've just said, in his humanity, our Lord was in the genealogical line of David. He was qualified. Verses 24 and 25, still in the sermon. And after John had first preached, that's the Baptist, before his coming, Christ's coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John the Baptist was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, that is, he's saying, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Of course, that's the Lord Jesus. And when the Lord Jesus appeared in the bank of the Jordan River to be baptized, to identify himself with the nation of Israel who were repenting of sin and being water baptized by John the Baptist, You remember what John the Baptist said when his eyes met the Savior coming to him on the banks of the Jordan to be baptized. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he wanted Jesus to baptize him. Jesus said, no, that I can fulfill the will of the Father, you baptize me. Not for repentance of sin, of course, but to show and to confirm and to authenticate that the message of John the Baptist, that repentance was necessary for the sinful nation, was the true message. And so, these verses 24 and 25 that I've just read, they stress two things. They stress repentance that's called the baptism of repentance. Repentance is not merely, I'm sorry that I sinned. It's part of it. Repentance is you're going one direction in sin, and the Holy Spirit of God gives you grace to know you're going in the wrong direction and sinning. He gives you a sorrow for sin, but then he gives you the strength, the inclination, and the willingness to turn and go the right direction. That's biblical repentance. And this part of Paul's sermon stressed it, alluding to the baptism of repentance. You're going in the wrong direction, pleasing yourself, pleasing the enemy of your soul, and you get to the point when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, convinces you of your sin, makes you sorrowful for your sin, but not just sorrowful, gives you grace to turn and go the other direction and not to return to that sin, like a dog to its vomit. The second point in these latter verses, at least of this part of the sermon we're covering today, after the repentance necessary for the nation of Israel and for Calvary Bible Church, the second point is the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. The superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nations, Lamb of God, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, Master, Savior, Redeemer, Friend. The superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. John is reported to have said in Paul's sermon, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loosen. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, name above all names. Wonderful Savior, living Lord. 
So let me ask you some questions to conclude. First, a question about sin. What is your view of sin? How do you view your own sin? How do you view the sin that surrounds us in Nassau? Do you see sin being deserving of God's holy wrath or not? Do you see sin as being dangerous? Or have you come to think that somehow sin is benign, nothing to worry about, it's not malignant? When the doctor tells you a little growth on your skin like he told me in my physical recently, that's nothing to worry about, it's benign. We don't want to look at sin that way. Any sin that is benign, don't worry about it. It was John Owen, the Puritan, who said, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What is your view of sin? Second question, what is your view of forgiveness? Is it cheap? Is God forgiving any particular sin cheap or costly? Is the forgiveness of sin accomplished through personal merit? Is the forgiveness of sin even possible for every sin? Why or why not? Now a question's about a heart of devotion to your Lord. Is a heart of devotion to your Lord beyond your reach? Is it something just for believers you read about in the Bible, believers you read about in church history, the people you most look up to in this congregation? Is that kind of heart devotion to the Lord only for certain super saints? Or is it for every believer? And if it's for every believer, how do you achieve it? Or have you got into a mindset about personal heart devotion to the Lord that I'll do that some other day? When I'm old, when I'm on my deathbed, when I'm not raising my family, when I'm retired? How do you view heart devotion to your Savior? Do you view it that it's like a diet? Just purely gut it out in your own best efforts and you'll become more fully devoted on heart to Christ? Is that it? Just a matter of gutting it out? Not eating breads and sugars and running two laps every morning? Is that what personal heart devotion to God has been reduced to? And what is your view of repentance? How do you know when repentance is necessary for you? What happens to you if you rationalize rationalize away repentance? Does anything happen? What is the consequence if you know you are to repent of something and you refuse? What difference does that make? Last series of questions. What is your view of Christ's supremacy? What is your view of Christ's supremacy? Do you love anyone more than you love Jesus Christ?
Do you trust anyone or anything more than you trust Christ? Do you serve anyone else or anything else more than Jesus Christ? When we can't honestly say that we love him the most and we trust him the most and we serve him the most, then that means we have idols in our lives. Some of our idols look respectable to other people. You can be a workaholic and the church will slap you on the back like you're a hero when your work is an idol. If we are not loving Christ more than anyone or anything, not trusting Christ more than anyone or anything, not serving Christ more than anyone or anything, then we have idols. What do we do with them? What do you do with cancer? You try to eradicate it. You take the chemo, you take the radiation, you take the surgery. Whatever it takes to get the cancerous cells out of your body, you are willing. What about our idols? Say, well, you know, Pastor, uh, nobody else knows about that idol of mine. Maybe not, but God does. Part of what we're doing when we come to the Lord's Supper in a moment is getting the right view of sin. We're getting the right view of forgiveness. We're getting the right view of heart devotion to Christ. We're getting the right view on repentance from sin. And we're getting the right view on Jesus Christ being Lord, supreme. May coming to the table this morning Rise above routine. Rise above business as usual. Rise above something we just do. May coming to the Lord's Supper today be life-changing. For today and for the days that remain in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sermon. We want to touch the pages of our Bible to see if the ink is still wet. It speaks to our justification, our sanctification. It speaks to the weightiness of sin. It speaks to the need of repentance. It speaks for the lordship of Jesus Christ to be worked out with fear and trembling in each of our lives and every sector of our lives. And so, Lord... As we come to the table, we would do so as worshipers. Accept our worship, for you are worthy. Help us to remember properly. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.